Another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth and one of the most influential voices in this great nation uh, joins me in studio in this uh, November Seattle day. And uh, it's David Brooks, who is a distinguished columnist, commentator for The New York Times and for Atlantic Magazine. He is, as they say in the uh, biography about his new book, which is called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. He's someone who also appears regularly on PBS NewsHour. Uh, Brooks is the best-selling author previously of The Second Mountain, The Road to Character, The Social Animal, and Bobo's in Paradise. And, oh, yes, also on Paradise Drive. Uh, David is going to be speaking tonight in Seattle at Town Hall, and uh, it's at 7.30 p.m. And, uh, David, I would imagine that in your speech tonight, uh, you would be able to connect some of the themes in your book, which has to do with human interaction and how to have more satisfactory and and beneficial human interaction, you would be able to connect that a little bit to the themes of the Thanksgiving holiday. Because we, we on this show at least prefer not to see Thanksgiving holiday as a day for repentance to Native Americans. It's <laughs> it's different. Yeah. Are you ready on that? I You know, I hadn't thought about it, but I really should because that's some of the most challenging uh, conversations we have all year. And so this book is really about uh, – exists on two levels. First, the personal level. I, I just wanted to train myself, and I'm not naturally the most social guy. My My joke is if you remember that movie Fiddler on the Roof – uh, you know how warm and huggy Jewish families can be. Mm-hmm. And I come from the other kind of Jewish family. Uh, we were super intellectual. And so we weren't really great at bonding. But, and so I just want to get better at understanding the people I talk to. And I want to get better at being a, what you are, an exceptionally skilled conversationalist. So you can really understand what's going on in other people's minds and they can know you. But then there's also a societal level, which is that we've got some sort of social breakdown in this society. And that's the rise of depression, the rise of suicide. 54% of Americans say that no one knows them well. The number of people who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by fourfold since 2000. And so I really just try to walk people through the skills from the first time you meet somebody to when you're having a casual conversation to when you're having a deep conversation, when you're talking to somebody who's suffering, talking to somebody you politically disagree with. How do you do that stuff? And so I just walk people through the skills. And I remember a couple of years ago, somebody asked me before Thanksgiving, how can we have a conversation about politics over the Thanksgiving dinner table conversation? So I said, here's my idea. Start for the first half hour. Here's your topic of conversation. Things I've always resented about you. And then when you get to <laughs> politics, it'll seem easy. <laughs> right. Um, uh, this year, the politics is going to be very uh, serious and uh, bitter, particularly on Thanksgiving time. Today is Joe Biden's birthday, as you know. He's 81 years old today. He seems to be genuinely angry and upset having a communication problem with David Axelrod. Uh, you've been following that. He called him uh, one of those words we don't say uh, on um, government-supervised radio. Uh, but... Uh, what what do you say to people, particularly in this fraught political atmosphere, 
with the passionate demonstrations, for instance, on both sides of the Gaza war issue. Uh, what do you say about getting beyond the initial political polarization so that you can even employ uh, the skills that are discussed in uh, your book, How to Know a Person? Uh, the second, uh, the subheading being the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. How do you look past in that seeing process yeah. the political polarization? So, you know, I, I have a chapter in there on how to have these conversations across ideological difference. And in the case of the Middle East, it's really passionate differences. And so one tip is try to make it a storytelling conversation. So as a journalist, I no longer ask people, what do you think about this? I ask, how did you come to believe this? And that way they're telling me a story about some event that happened in their life, some person who made values, and so some personal experience that really informed their views. So on the Middle East, I, um, you know, I've covered Israel. I've probably been there 25, 30 times. I had a son who served in the IDF. And so I have some personal bank in the game. And so I'm going to tell you my personal experience, but I want to hear your personal experience, how you came to be believe what you wanted to believe. The second thing, and I learned from an Israeli guy named Micah Goodman, which is find the disagreement under the disagreement. And this is an old Talmudic scholarly thing, that if you and I disagree about something, what's the philosophical reason deep down that is causing us to disagree? And that way we're just not repeating talking to ourselves. We're exploring the grounds of our disagreement. And then the final thing I'll say is keep the gem statement in the center. So you and I, like my brother and I may disagree on our dad's health care, but we both want what's best for our dad. And so the, the, that's the thing we, disagree, we agree upon, and that's the gem statement. If we can keep coming back to that, we'll save the relationship amid a disagreement. And so those are some hopefully practical tips for how to have a conversation across some, some super bitter differences. And the overall philosophy of the thing is uh, – when, when you tell me your point of view, I want to be curious about it. I want to ask you about it two or three times. Tell me, tell me more, tell me more. What am I missing here? And there's a great book I recommend called Crucial Conversations about how to have these conversations. And the authors of that book say, in any conversation, respect is like air. When it's present, nobody notices. When it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So if you can keep that respect, then you can have a real conversation. Okay. What's fascinating, you talk about the gem statement. Um, the, and you also mentioned the Talmudic process. You know, there is a Talmudic phrase which is called the ikerzach, the the essential element, the the seed element, the core element, which I think is exactly yeah. what you're talking about. What is the core element, the gem statement, or the the key divide? that pushes America into one of the two primary warring camps we seem to have in this country? Yeah, I would say, uh, well, there's, there's a lot of them, but I would say one is, if you want, my, if you want to talk about the culture war, mm -hmm. I would say the, the core element is on the left, the belief is free to be myself. And so it's a lot of it's about individual autonomy. I should do whatever I want. And then the core element on the right is I don't belong to me, that I belong to a higher power. It may be God, it may be my community, it may be my country, but the, the cohesion of my country is just super powerful and super important to me. And so I have obligations to family. I have obligations to flag. I have obligations to faith. And I think more on the, the, the left, it's I want to have free choice to do what I want. 
and I, I the the or the individual should be able to choose their own lifestyle, whether it's LGBTQ or whether they're born into LGBTQ or whatever. They should be able to live out the lifestyle as they personally see fit. And I think that would be the core disagreement under all, a lot of our other cultural disagreements. And that that disagreement and disagreements in general and how to have them less destructively is the theme of uh, David Brooks' new bestseller, How to Know a Person, the Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And if uh, you want to participate in the conversation, uh, 1-800-955-1776 gives you the chance to do that. Uh, David is appearing tonight at Town Hall in Seattle, not too far from where we're sitting right now. And uh, that will be at 7.30 p.m. Is there an announced topic? Uh, just just talk, how to know a person. Talk about my book, so you will laugh, you will cry. <laughs> so, right, and you'll get to know uh, several hundred other people who are there at uh, this event. We will be right back with more on uh, politics and a character in politics and more. His previous book was called The And on the Medved Show, it is my honor and pleasure to be speaking in studio to uh, the one, the only David Brooks of Atlantic Magazine and the New York Times and PBS and much, much more. Also a chronically best-selling writer whose latest book is going to be the subject of his meeting tonight at Town Hall. Uh, that's uh, tonight at 7.30 p.m. Uh, right here in downtown Seattle. And David, you you were alluding to before, there's a, so much publicity recently for deaths of despair in the United States, which uh, seem to be hitting um, white people of a certain age particularly hard. Uh, there are staggering numbers, the number of people who die by suicide, more die by suicide than by murder, by a large margin of advantage, uh, drug overdoses, uh, depression, uh, and, and obviously the psychiatric and mental illness issues, issues that the late Rosalind Carter, may him memory be blessed, uh, was very concerned with that also increasingly devastating big swaths of the population. Why do you think that is happening right now and how will the idea of seeing others more deeply uh, yeah. make a difference? Yeah, I was out in Oklahoma several months ago and I'm giving a talk and it's one of those talks where they ask you questions through index cards mm -hmm. and so I'm going through the index cards and most of them are about politics and one of them uh, said, I turned the card over, it says, what do you do if you no longer want to be alive? And I was shocked and I didn't know what to say and frankly I passed over because I just didn't know what to say. And I mentioned it at dinner uh, the next night when I got home, and the young woman there said, well, my brother killed himself uh, three months ago. Uh, and I lost my oldest friend to suicide in about 18 months ago. And then I'd, I'm in a little discussion group, about 30 people and over Zoom. And I'd say half the people had some contact somewhere in their life with, with this. And so it's just this epidemic. And not only of suicide, it's of loneliness. You know, the number of people, 36% uh, of Americans say they're persistently lonely. And if you leave people naked and alone, if they feel invisible, there's nothing crueler than see, 
feeling the world doesn't see you. Uh, and you feel you're invisible, you feel insulted. And among other things, you you lash out. Because if you feel unseen, you feel it as an injustice. Nobody sees my dignity here. And you want to show the world you exist. And so sometimes you lash out with violence. Sometimes you, this neurotic public displays. But sometimes you just lash out in self-destructive ways. And so one of my hopes of the book is that we sit with people and we, we build a society in which people are more closely connected. The thing that makes us happiest is being closely connected with other human beings in community. And so that's one of my hope. We, I just give people the skills to know how to do that. My more specific hope is that uh, I help people deal with people who are contemplating suicide. And so I mentioned my friend uh, succumbed to it a, a little while ago, and he, he had three years of depression. And I made some of the common mistakes people make when they're trying to sit with someone who's depressed. So one common mistake is I tried to give them ideas how to get out of depression. And I would say, you know, if you go to Vietnam, you used to do these service trips, you love that, do that. And when I realized that if you uh, are giving people who are depressed ideas about how to get out of it, all you're doing is showing you just don't get it. Because it's not ideas they lack. It's energy. It's a lot of other things, but it's not ideas. The second thing I would do, I would try to cheer them up. And I'd say, you know, look at your, you have a great wife, you have great kids, great career. And I learned, so I was trying to like show him all the good things in his life. But all I was doing was reminding him he wasn't enjoying the things that are really enjoyable. So I was making him feel worse. And so these are the mistakes we can make. And I think that what I learned ultimately is there's not much you can say, but you can say, um, first of all, uh, acknowledge the reality of the situation. This stinks. This stinks. Second, just show goodwill. I want more for you. I want more for you. And then just show in, in word and deed, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and I'm I'm... You may feel isolated, I understand that, but I'm still here with you. And the words may have no, you may not be able to transform the situation, but at least you'll have accompanied the person through a hard time as best as you can. And so I try to give people tips of so many people are around people who are depressed or have some mental health issues. How do you behave? And I try to give concrete tips on how do you try to do that. Well, speaking of mental health issues, there is a... Uh, a national concern, and the President of the United States has spoken about this, um, the uh, Speaker of the House has spoken about it, and, and virtually everybody on all sides of our politics has spoken about the perceived rise of anti-Semitism in this country. Mm-hmm. And this is before the October 7th. October 7th clarified it and intensified it, perhaps for people. First of all, do you believe it's true and that there has been an increase in anti-Semitic sentiment and expressions? And uh, have you been a little bit surprised, as I have, and I've acknowledged this, at the ability of Jewish people to actually come together in uh, a spirit of unity, of achdut, we say in Hebrew, uh, that... uh, that is uncharacteristic of people who are so argumentative and traditionally divided. Yeah, though I've seen it so many times in Israel society that the, that the people in Israel, like their politics is brutal and yeah. they can really be at each other. But when there's a somebody, there's a terrorist attack, an intifada, they come together. And I saw an account of an Israeli tank, a guy in a tank. He said, I'm super left. There are two other guys in my tank. One of them super right. One of them is somewhere else. And we we're just stuck in this tank. 
And so they've come together and they found we actually agree on 90% of the stuff and we're one unit. We're all here together. And I think that that's happened um, in this country. You know, I, I was a little surprised. I guess I was shocked, more than a little surprised by some of the naked anti-Semitism, you know, the, the naked celebration of what happened on October 7th. But I ascribe it, like so many others, to an ideology that's been expanding in our universities and then in our media and then so many cultural institutions for the last 20 years or so. And it's an ideology that says we should emphasize the differences between people, not what you, all human beings share. We should divide people into groups. And there are oppressor groups and there are oppressed groups. Uh, and there's no human communication. If I sit with uh, someone who's very different than me, a black woman or a Latina lesbian, I can't really communicate with them because groups are always at war with each other. It's all power relations. I think all these are terrible ideas. I think we have, we have all human beings have a lot in common. Uh, we're not all groups separated by oppressor oppressed relationships. A lot of life is just friendship and trust, and it can be trust across difference. And then, you know, we're, we're not all, uh, it's not all group conflict. Uh, and yet a lot of uh, young people have been inculcated with this ideology. And so they decide, is this person oppressor or oppressed? Is this group a colonizer or colonized? And once they decide Jews are the colonizers, itself a bizarre notion, by the way, then they have no category in their head for Jewish suffering. Uh, and so a Jewish woman gets raped, they, they have no category for that, and they're callous. And uh, there's still 238, I believe, hostages who are out there still unaccounted for. Uh, may they be liberated soon. We'll be right back with David Brooks, author of How to Know a Person. Who is there that is really a person that can bring everyone together? Michael Medved. Michael Medved show with David Brooks, the author of the most recent bestseller. It is How to Know a Person, the Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. We're in the midst of a presidential campaign. It's less than a year, less than a year. We're all going to be voting. I mean, I hope all of us are going to be voting. I hope it's another big turnout. But uh, are there any political figures or presidential aspirants on either party in any corner of this election, including people like Robert Kennedy and Cornell West and maybe Joe Manchin, anyone who uh, seems to be employing the lessons at relatability in your book, How to Know a Person? Yeah, you know, when you ask me that question, my first mind leaps back to past politicians so like Bill Clinton, famously, when you talked to Bill Clinton, you thought you were the only one in the room. And so he yeah, would. And I feel your pain. Yeah. So that, that I mean, he did have that skill. Uh, George W. Bush uh, was probably the most extroverted president I've covered. If you're in a room with him, he would eliminate all distance between you. And he had that since childhood. His dad used to write in one of his memoirs that all the polite kids when they were like six were going to Sunday school and they would say, hello, teacher. It's good to see you. And George W., six-year-old George W. would be like, hey, sexy lady, good to be here with you. Like he, he just was like a, a funny guy. And he was like, he made you feel at home. And so he had that skill. 
Um, I think Trump has zero of the skill, frankly. I think <laughs> I, the, him, the idea of him being empathetic toward those around him, I, 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 if it happens, I have not observed that. Um, Biden has a bit of the skill in that he is – he. you know, I've been interviewing the guy for 30 years. What people don't get about Biden often is that he's a tough kind of super chip on his shoulder kind of guy. But if he's – especially with working class folks, uh, who he does, he's really sensitive to somebody he thinks is condescension, condescending to him. But with working class folks, he feels at home and he, he can be quite funny and he can do that kind of bonding. Um, among the others, I don't see, frankly, some of the great political personal skills. Ron DeSantis, sorry, uh, <laughs> you may like Ron DeSantis, but as an interpersonal buddy-buddy, um, you're looking at an ice cube. Uh, and Nikki Haley, I haven't had enough personal contact with. Um, I'm, so I'm going to stick with uh, f- future president Marion Williamson. <laughs> so she, she probably has. Uh, what what happened skills. to her campaign? Is she still in the race? I believe she's still out there, uh, but it, it, she certainly hasn't broken through in any significant way. But you know, we're we're living in a a, a brutal hard time, and so some of the skills that uh, I talk about here is how to really build relationship. So, for example, one person who I know a bit. Uh, who is really you really warm to the guy? You just love being around the guy. Is Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, and he dropped out because people thought he was too nice. And so this may not be the era for for nice people running for office. Uh, yeah, I mean at, at least uh, Nikki Haley has to pretend that her three inch, not five inch, her three inch heels are weapons. <laughs> yes, uh, that's true. It's we're we're into in, the age in of order fighting to to seem uh, vulnerable at all. Okay, today uh, there are two stories in the news that I'd like to try to bring together and see if you can go with me in this direction. Is One is the passing of Rosalind Carter. Her memory should be a blessing. Every indication is uh, that uh, she was a lovely person, very positive person, patriotic American, all those things. And uh, it's also Joe Biden's birthday. And, of course, his birthday, there are a great many fine editorials, a great piece by Jim Garrity of National Review. Uh, there's an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about how Joe Biden could help the country so enormously if he would make a Lyndon Johnson-like announcement decision uh, saying that uh, I'm going to concentrate all of my attention on handling these two devastating wars in Ukraine and in Gaza and make sure that America helps our allies and I'm going to concentrate on that and meanwhile um, step out of the presidential race. And then you, now the only way I can see that, and this is where Rosalind Carter comes in, is if Jill actually had some – Rahmanis, some sympathy uh, uh, for her husband, who, I mean, again, it's awful for people who, uh, who want the best for the country to see President Biden advancing further and further into age. But I can only imagine how painful it is for him, how difficult it is when you're asked constantly – uh, are you too old to be president? When 70, what is it, 77 percent of Americans now, including an overwhelming majority of Democrats, think he's too old to run. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned earlier David Axelrod, Barack Obama's former uh, staffer. 
uh, I think that that must have really set Biden off because the Biden has this sense that the Obama people always looked down on him. They thought he wasn't smart enough. They thought he wasn't serious enough. They went for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so you saw him lash. You heard or at least third-hand reports of him really angry at Axelrod. Uh, and so – but I will tell you, I've had the chance to interview him in the White House a few times. And uh, I would – personally, I'm, you can be sure of anything. But I would – if you think he should step down, I would not get your hopes up. Uh, I think he thinks he's loves the job. He thinks he's good at the job. I think his wife thinks he's good at the job. I think he thinks that I'm the only one who really understands the long history of the conflicts in the Middle East, conflicts and war. I have a conception of the world as uh, between basically civilized democracies and authoritarian strongmen. I understand how to fight this war, and I think I'm needed at this moment. And I will tell you, as someone who's interviewed him, my view is he's like a pitcher who used to throw 93 and now throws 86. And so it, he's not what he was, but... He's not a basket case either. And some of the rhetoric about him being a doddering old grandpa, I can tell you for sure. And if you, anyone doubts me, read the book Frank Four wrote about the Biden administration. Uh, he is running that White House. You may not like it. You may think it's a terrible administration. But Joe Biden is making those decisions. And the Biden administration would not be supporting Israel the way they are if it wasn't for Joe Biden. It's not like there's some cabal who are plotting this thing. That's all Biden. And so – he, it's possible he'll have to step down because he's whatever, how old he is, and that things happen. But I, if I was a Democrat or Republican, I would assume Joe Biden badly thinks he not only wants the presidency, but thinks he belongs and should be president. What should we be looking for in a repeat Trump-Biden debate? You remember, of course, yeah. the first debate they had last time, which was painful. You felt like a lower kind of human being to have watched the thing. Yeah, I went through an uncomfortable amount of bourbon during that debate. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wasn't on the air, I should say. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't even know if we'll have debates. Uh, Biden, uh, Trump is skipping debates now. Uh, he may want to skip them, and frankly, Biden might be just as happy. So, Well, wouldn't that be the best opportunity for Biden to show that he wasn't the doddering old grandpa, that he yeah. still had an 86-mile-an-hour fastball? Yeah, so the, my, my doubts about the theory I just gave you, I believe in, but uh, the doubts I have come from the way his staff treats him. Because mm -hmm. they really protect him. They wall him off. They, they're super careful with him. And uh, when they, like, put a 500-foot fence all around him from the media, I think, what do they know that I don't? Why are they so protective of him? And so maybe they're maybe – they're, I think they're afraid, he, they're afraid he'll make some slur. They're afraid he'll do a Clint Eastwood get off my lawn sort of thing. Um, and so – but they – maybe they know something. But uh, it would be uh, – I, th I think Donald Trump is not where he was in 2016. You know. Yeah, he might not want to debate. I mean, because that first debate was uh, very harmful to Paul's show, very harmful to President Trump. Right. Uh, but then again, could he really withstand the temptation of quite – because he does imitations. You've seen some of Trump's imitations of Biden. Right. Uh, he does everything but drool. Uh, David Brooks, the author of How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. So what are the highlights and the lowlights we should expect from the year ahead between this Thanksgiving and next Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving of uh, 2024 when the election...
And on the Michael Medved Show, a few minutes more with best-selling author, uh, nationally known and respected and revered columnist uh, David Brooks, his new book, uh, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being uh, Deeply Seen. David is speaking tonight at Town Hall, and it's not too late for you to attend. He's uh, on at 730 uh, from the East Coast, it's probably not going to work because even though it starts at 10.30 Eastern Time, okay, 7.30 right here in uh, Seattle at Town Hall. Uh, so, David, do you have special plans for Thanksgiving? I'm uh, seeing my uh, family in Philadelphia where my father is. My father has Parkinson's, so we're, he, we try to congregate around him. And so my kids are spread around the country, uh, and we're all going to gather together and it's the one of the few times my daughter lives all the way in Southern California. She's a hockey coach, and so she gets to come back. And my son in Virginia, and my other son in New York. So we're all gathered. Are, were you raised in Philly? I went to high school in a place called Radnor, which is thirteen oh, sure. miles. And <clears throat> I grew up until about age twelve in uh, Lower Manhattan. I'm a, I'm a Manhattan Lower East Side kid, uh, and I went to a church school. I went to called Grace Church School. If anybody knows where the Strand Bookstore is in New York, right next door. And I, my joke is we were in the choir. Uh, and because it was, frankly, Lower Manhattan, we were about 40% Jews in the choir. And so to square it with our, the hymns with our religion, we wouldn't sing the word Jesus. And so the, the volume would drop down on the church and then it would come back up. So uh, <laughs> that was, But I got to spend every day in chapel in that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful church. It gave me a great love of beautiful architecture. And it, was, it was a really fine school. Yeah, I, I was in Philadelphia until <clears throat> I was six. My parents moved to California. Okay. Good move. Um, but, well, to San Diego, which was um, a whole different environment. Um, in terms of from this Thanksgiving to next Thanksgiving, what's your most optimistic view of what can change for the better in the country from the one year to the next? I guess my most optimistic view is that uh, Hamas is finished as a political force. And some sort of set of Arab regimes get together and create an administrative state. Uh, I don't expect this, but I would love to see Putin lose <laughs> and dethroned uh, in Ukraine. Uh, frankly, I, I would love to see whatever one thinks of the Republican Party. I'd love to see the reign of Donald Trump be over and we won't be talking about him so much anymore. And there'll be a rise of new Republicans and new Democrats uh, on the horizon. Uh, and then, frankly, I would like to see uh, – I think we have a very strong economy. Uh, given all the social decay we've talked about this hour, you know, the American economy is growing at faster rate than China for the first point. Uh, inflation is down, down. You wouldn't know it out here in Washington State, but back east where I am uh, most of the time, uh, I pay three nineteen a gallon. And so gas prices are down. Are you really? You're down that low? Yeah, that's what are, about what we're paying these is days. Is that in New Jersey or? Uh, that's New in Maryland. In Maryland. Yeah, wow. So. Um, gas prices have come down quite a lot for us. I, I read the other day airline prices are at their lowest level in many decades. And so I'd love to see prices really begin to come down. One of the most heartening statistics for me is American productivity level is surging. And that's really the key to the economy. You want your workers to be producing stuff. And wages are growing. Inequality is falling. And so I would like to see the, econo the economic gains we've seen translate into social gains. It's very hard to build a healthy democracy on top of a rotting society. And so the book is really about how do we build trusting relationships. 
And so I'd love to see us turn the corner on the epidemic of loneliness, depression, suicide. Do you think that uh, – I think a a mutual friend of ours, Joe Lieberman, is um, in charge of no labels. And there's all sorts of talk that Joe Manchin would be the candidate with someone interesting like a Chris Sununu as his vice presidential candidate. Is this that one election that's a unicorn where a third-party candidate, given the lack of enthusiasm uh, for both uh, President Biden and former President Trump, does a third-party candidate have a chance? I don't think they have a chance to win, frankly. I think once we get to the the fall, people are going to be Trump-Biden, Trump-Biden, Trump-Biden. And any support you see for a Robert Kennedy candidate – for a no-labels candidate, I think that will go down. Cornell West? Cornell West, uh, whoever you want to throw in there. We could have seven or eight candidates. Uh, no, Cornell West is up like a rocket. He's going to be in the White House now. Right. Uh, um, you know, and so I'm a little worried about the no-labels campaign because my read of the group they call the double haters, which is the people who disapprove of both candidates, uh, there are more pro-Biden people in that camp. So my analysis, and this an objective judgment, I think, is that it would probably end up helping um, Donald Trump uh, more than it would help Joe Biden. Although right now, the interesting fact for me is that a Robert Kennedy candidate candidacy seems to hurt Trump more. And so, but as I say, his numbers, which sometimes you see him in 22% of the polls, that's wildly inflated. That's just because people hear the name Kennedy or people think, oh, anybody but Biden and and Trump. So that Kennedy guy, how bad can he be? But then they'll look into him and his numbers will go down. If you were uh, giving advice to President Trump and I, you were telling us some stories that were you have had some uh, warm correspondence with, <laughs> with, with President Trump. Very one-sided. If you were advising him on who he should choose as his running mate, uh, have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously Kanye West. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be a great debate with him and Kamala. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think he should go. I mean, I think he will go. This is my estimation that he'll go with the Carrie Lake. Uh, I think he. Except she's running for Senate and she's raised a lot of money. She has. And, and she, no, she just uh, issued a really, really nasty ad about Gallego, Ruben Gallego, her yeah. likely Democratic opponent. Yeah. talking about his divorce. Yeah, though, if she had a chance to, to be vice president, would she turn that down? That would be maybe. But there are, there are a series of other, uh, Noam, the uh, governor, uh, there are a few, uh, some of the, I think he'll probably pick a woman. Uh, and there are some pre- actually some pretty good candidates. You don't think he would pick Tim Scott? It's, that would be a possibility. I would, I, I would think that. I, there, I guess I, I haven't reported this, but I've heard others report that they're leaning to picking a woman. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, I, I think people close to Trump have suggested that. Probably won't be Stephen Miller. Probably not be <laughs> Stephen Miller, either the advisor or the rock band musician. And you said before, I think you th- you think it's um, 55% likelihood that President Biden is reelected. Yeah, I say that with great humility that I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I, I guess the only thing I'd say is the current polls, I think, are somewhat unreliable. Because all leaders are underwater these days. Uh, we're in just an ugly time. People have lost faith. And I think when a lot of the pollsters call, people decide, I'm going to send a message. And I'm going to say, I hate the incumbent. And that, that's very different sending a message than actually voting. And so I think some of those polls are unreliable. And I look back to the fact that in 
2018, 2020, 2022, 2023, a majority of voters have said, I'm not a MAGA. I don't want MAGA back. And so I, I presume that majority is still there, but it's anybody's guess. It is. And the the one thing that I hope for is the one positive thing about our politics is more people have been voting. Yeah. And a lot of people forget that. It's not just Trump. Uh, that, that started with Obama. It was an upward upward trend of more people going to the polls. And the idea that uh, people should feel participants in this great democracies, that's something to feel thankful yeah, for. And there's a lot at stake. So people understand that, that the fate of the country really is a risk. And so they want to do something for their, for their country. And I, I do think that looking at what's going on in Gaza, uh, what, whichever side you are on that issue, and looking at what continues to go on in Ukraine, not to mention Darfur, which the which is the other genocide right. that Americans have paid very little attention to, uh, there's reason for people to be concerned, but also to be concerned about personal relationships, which is the subject of the new bestseller by David Brooks. Uh, he was the best-selling author previously of The Road to Character, the new book, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Welcome to Seattle. I hope people come to hear you tonight. There'll be a chance for questions at the there event tonight. There'll definitely be a chance for questions, so I'm so, looking forward to it. So anything that I was too cloddish to think of here, they can come tonight to hear David Brooks. Tonight at Town Hall uh, at 7.30 p.m. Um, tomorrow, we're going to be talking about how to lose the youth vote. Um, this is a, a really serious mistake made by President Biden. You saw? I'm just looking at the headline on your screen. <laughs> yes. No, offended. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. He uh, confused. Uh, he confused Taylor Swift with Britney Spears. This is this is serious. Uh, yes, well, could be World Miley War Three. Yeah, at least it wasn't Miley Cyrus. There we go. In this greatest nation on God's green earth.